0: Take your Bible and open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. Maybe by the end of all this, we'll have it memorized, because we're reading the same paragraph over and over again and working our way through it, a phrase at a time. The explanation doesn't take very long, but we're spending most of our time pulling in the rest of the scriptures to help us apply it and uh, seal it into our hearts First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 22. I'm going to read the whole paragraph, and you'll know where we're going in the weeks to come. Each, we're doing a phrase at a time. We're now in verse 15, but again, I'll read the whole paragraph. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 22. This is the word of the Lord. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Father, we pray your spirit would teach us as we study your word, and we pray that he would move us to make changes where we need to make, and he would sanctify us so that our hearts are aligned with your truth and with your heart, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. November 19th of this year will mark the 19th anniversary of a now infamous basketball game known as Malice at the Palace. Who knows what that is? Yeah, a few out there, yeah. Not a lot, and none of the young people. 2004 was the year. I had been out of college just one year, out of high school for one year. It was uh, very memorable and a very ugly moment. Social media was not what it is now, but I saw videos of that over and over and over again. Regular season game it's Indiana Pacers against the Detroit Pistons, their conference rivals from the previous year. Indiana's ahead by 15 points. There's about 45 seconds left. And I won't document everything that took place, but there was a clear chain reaction fueled by some contributing factors, which are the rivalry between them and the amount of alcohol the fans had been drinking. It was a heated game, which I I didn't watch. All I saw was the last seven, eight minutes, which was the brawl. The main ignition point was a foul by Indiana That led to a shove in retaliation. That led to both benches being cleared. And after about, what you might expect, a couple minutes, things start to cool down. But then a fan threw a beer cup onto a player and the fight erupted beyond the court and the sidelines. Players went up into the stands to fight. Fans came down onto the court to fight. And it was chaos, and it was disgraceful. Chairs were thrown, food and trash was hurled everywhere, children were left crying, uh, one radio announcer broke five vertebrae, and they never played the remaining, the remaining 45 seconds of the game. As a result of the game, the NBA security protocols were changed, the timing and the size of alcoholic beverages was changed, multiple players received suspensions. The longest one was for 86 games. I think the total was about $11 million in losses to players' salaries. Some players and some fans were even charged with assault and battery. It's about a six-minute brawl that just keeps moving until they can clear the uh, the arena. As you watch the brawl, and this happens in any, if you watch a sports brawl when the bench is clear, there's always... Four different groups. One group is very, very few. If you're on the team, you you need to clear the bench. So very few people are just sitting out. That'd be the fans just watching. But you have different motivations of the people who step in. You have those who step into the fight because they want to fight. They want instant, swift justice. They want retaliation. Others take a more defensive position. They're there to make sure their teammate doesn't get hurt. And so if you see them fighting, it's because they're trying to make sure there isn't some uh, threat to one of their teammates. But there's a third group who acts a little differently because they step into the fight, but it's not to attack and it's not to defend against an enemy. It is to defend a teammate or protect a teammate basically from himself. They're trying to stop him from doing something stupid. They're holding him back, trying to prevent him from doing something that can lead to regret, injury, or severe consequences to the team or maybe even his own career. That last group, they're the ones that have a bigger picture in mind, and they're compelled to act. So they're not just on the sideline. They're they're, they're not trying to fight, though. They're there to help. They're there to take care of their teammate. And that is maybe closer to the heart that I see in verse 15 of this paragraph, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'll read it one more time. It says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. You should notice that the command in that verse is not simply to not repay evil for evil. It doesn't say that. The command there is the word see. And see means to take note of, to pay attention to, to be cautious about. So if you have a 4th of July party and someone says see, then none of the toddlers fall into the pool. They're calling you to keep an eye out. This is a call for vigilance. It's asking all of you who are members of a church to look out for the rest of the church. Going back to the end of verse 13, we saw that Paul was trying to help the church understand that everybody, not just the leaders, everybody has a role in the health and the strength of the church. The end of verse 13 says, be at peace among yourselves. Verse 14, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be, be patient with everyone. Those commands are reminders that everyone has a responsibility for the rest of the church. And verse 15 follows the same idea. We need to watch out for one another. In this case, we need to guard one another from an evil response. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. That, that phrase, no one, is not saying we should monitor every possible person that we can. He's talking about the church. No one in the church should be allowed or encouraged to repay evil evil. For evil. And that word evil is significant because there are two different kinds of evil, at least the the Hebrew and the Greek words behind it. Sometimes evil, especially in the Old Testament, simply refers to something that's disastrous. It, It doesn't necessarily, in those occasions, speak to a moral quality. Someone could say, This flood has brought great evil upon the land. They don't mean malice, they mean disaster, pain. But the Greek word here is, Cacos, which refers to something that is evil, evil or ugly by nature. So if you know the word cacophony an ugly sound, it's it's inherently wicked, malicious. Something else to notice is that what Paul says implies that evil is going to happen. He's not saying make sure evil never happens to anyone. He doesn't say that. He says see that no one repays evil for evil he understood that we would be on the receiving end of evil on the one side we're going to receive evil because we still live in a sinful body among sinful people but we also know that we live in in the world we live in a world under the control of satan so if you belong to Jesus Christ if you're trying to serve Jesus you need to be especially prepared to face the hostility of the world jesus said if they hated me they'll hate you This world hates the true Jesus. This world hates the truth. We as the church stand up. We we are the pillar and support of the truth. And the world lashes out in anger. And you have in the Bible, especially in Acts, multiple accounts of that. The the Thessalonian church understood that. They understood that the Jews in Jerusalem had been attacked because of the faith. They understood that Paul had come to Thessalonica because he was kicked out of Philippi. They saw him minister, minister in Philippi. They saw him leave Thessalonica because his life was threatened. And then they themselves experienced it because they were converted out of idolatry to serve Christ. And so chapter one, it says, they received the word in much affliction. That's not speaking to their poverty. That's speaking to, because of their conversion, they were facing persecution. Chapter two says, you suffered, just like the Jews did from them, from the Jews, you suffered the same from your own countrymen. That would be the Greek population. You have an example of that in the city of Ephesus in Acts 19. Paul is preaching the gospel, and a riot starts because those who make idols know, wait, wait, if he preaches one God and only one God and the people are converted, our industry is done and they come in threatening his life and, 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 and the disciples have to hold Paul out of the amphitheater because they know he could potentially die if he were to go in there. This church faced the hostility of the world and yet in that, Paul says, don't seek revenge. Don't seek payback. Instead, what you should be seeking is to do good. That's the end of the verse. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Whether, that, whether the sin came from someone in the church, whether the sin came from the world, seek to do good. And the Greek word there for good is agathos, which you get the name Agatha. It's the opposite of kakos. It's something inherently good. It actually speaks to something that's beautiful, honorable. Responding to evil with good is one of the things that sounds nice, but it's a whole lot easier said than done, right? Someone offends you, someone attacks you, someone paints you in, in a bad light, a coworker says something that isn't completely true, a boss doesn't seem to appreciate you, your mom, your dad, your sister, whoever, someone does something mean or vile, And God says, you need to be good to them in return. Pay them back with kindness. Again, it sounds beautiful, and we can have the best of intentions on a Sunday morning, but then we get afflicted by the world. Uh, Mike Tyson, if you know the quote, famously said, everyone's got a plan till they get punched in the mouth. The world comes at us, someone offends us, And our sinful nature is going to want to retaliate. We justify the idea. If you hurt me, I am free to hurt you. In fact, some people would say I'm obligated. How many times do you hear a child say when they get in trouble, but she started it. He did it first. We may not say it like that as adults, but it's the same heart. So your your, your spouse or your boss disrespects you. We are tempted many times to respond with sin. We're going to give them the cold shoulder. We're going to shout back. We're going to gossip. All of those are examples of repaying evil for evil. So don't just hear that verse and say, oh, that's what the world does. You know, my my neighbor doesn't let me park in front of his house. So, you know, I burned down his garage. You know, that's the extreme. He says, Do good. And just to be clear about the context of this passage, he's speaking in the context of personal relationships. God is not advocating that this this principle be applied or or the driving motivation behind international policy or local government, just so you understand. We want to keep things in their own sphere. People say, well, the Bible says repay evil for evil, and we shouldn't be doing this or that. The nation of Israel was told, we'll look at this later today, passages, love your enemy, love your enemy. But when sin was committed, there was justice, but that was to be carried out, not by an individual citizen, but by civil authorities. So I'm not, we're not trying to take one principle and erase another. This is in your own personal relationships. Repay evil with good. So what do you do in those moments to, to summon the strength that you need? And what if someone comes to you and they tell you how they were sinned against by a roommate or a neighbor? How do you help them? Well, the starting place, like any other aspect of Christian life, the starting place is the mind. You have to redirect your attention and you have to help yourself and the other person focus not just on what happened and not really on how it made them feel, but you need to place their attention somewhere else. You need to place it within a bigger picture. And looking at this topic and, and all these other verses, it, it, it's all over the Bible. You learn that this isn't unique to the Thessalonians. This isn't unique to Paul. This isn't unique to the apostles. This isn't unique even to the New Testament. It's all over the Bible. So they studied and tried to think through how to do this. What we're going to do this morning, instead of having us jump all around our Bible, is I'm just going to give you the outline or the answers up front. Then if you want to jot them down, you can. But then we'll go through the scriptures in order And hopefully that one should support what I'm telling you, but also maybe give you some ideas for for study later on. We'll see some examples. We'll see some other connecting principles. Here's the outline up front. If you want to help yourself or help a brother respond appropriately when they're sinned against, you should direct your attention to five things. Number one, you point yourself or you point the other person to God's sovereignty. That's number one, God's sovereignty. God knows what's happened. He's aware of it and he's still on his throne he is sovereign he's all powerful he has allowed or ordained that this happen and he's in charge he's not lost his position on his eternal throne that's his sovereignty number 2 you point them to god's nearness he's not sovereign and detached he's with you the command to weep with those who weep is an expression of the the, the sympathy of god and christ our great high priest he's he's with you he understands the pain Christ was sinned against. Number three, we should also look to God's love. Because when a child is told no by his parent, he might say, well, uh, they don't love me anymore. They're looking at one incident. And we do the same with our Heavenly Father. Something happened. I don't like that. It's painful. It may even be painful for an extended period of time, and we can doubt God's love. And even in the pain, we have to acknowledge God loves us. Romans eight twenty eight. there's still a plan that he has for us. He, there's a loving purpose behind what's going on. All things work together for good. So we look to God's sovereignty. We look to God's nearness. We look to God's love. Number four, we look to God's reward. Also from Romans 8, the, 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 the pain, the trials of this life aren't worth comparing to the joy that is set before us. This is all going to be worth it in the end. Christ, by his spirit, has guaranteed a final victory. His love, our salvation, none of that's in jeopardy. And as secure as our salvation is, so is the judgment of those who reject. And so point number five is God's vengeance. Look to God's vengeance. It's tempting to think, yeah, but if I don't deal with it now, when is this going to be dealt with? And the answer is when Christ comes. Nobody gets away with sin. True justice will be done one day fully. So that's the outline up front. You look to God's sovereignty, look to God's nearness, look to God's love, look to God's reward, look to God's vengeance. As you talk with someone, maybe there's an avenue there they're not considering. It doesn't make the pain go away, but it sets it within the broader picture. It combats the lies they're saying. God is mad at me. They're not going to get, what about justice? With those points in mind, now you can all take a nap. Now let's go back to Genesis. I'm going to go through, start to finish, just jumping. There's so much that's connected to this principle, but I want to just, not, I can't even say the highlights, just the things that stood out to me, but lay them before you, and maybe something by the Spirit of God will, will strike with you as you think about this principle. Again, it's not a complicated principle but it's what sets the people of God apart from the people of this world. Go to Genesis chapter 50, last chapter of the book. Most of you know the story of Joseph, sold as a slave by his brothers, eventually ends up in the land of Egypt, His brothers come to visit him. He finally reveals himself because they didn't recognize him. He saved their life. This is the end of that story. Chapter 15. I'm sorry. Chapter 50, verse 15. Genesis 50, 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So... Now without their father to protect them, they sent a message to to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he dies. Say to Joseph, on behalf of your father, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And the brothers continue, And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Verse 18 says, His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. They're humbling themselves before him. We are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You see the themes there of God's sovereignty, God's justice, God's love, God's reward. He took care of them. I'm not God. I know what you did. What you did was wrong. He recognizes it. He recognizes it. But I'm going to show you kindness. There's a bigger picture here. Jump over a book to Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments. All of Israel's there. They hear the thunderous voice of God. And then they leave. They're they're, they're terrified. Moses, you stay. You get the rest of it. Because we're not going to listen to God's voice. We will die. Israel... It was just 70 people or so go off into Egypt. But they grow in Egypt to about 2 million people. They're now ready to become God's chosen nation. They have the people, but they need the land. And they need a law. And that's what the rest of Exodus is. It's God's telling them how to obey him. Exodus chapter 23, look at verse 4. This is the type of nation Israel was chosen to be. Verse 4, chapter 23, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of the one who hates you lying down under its burden, in other words, the animal is, is tired, can no longer move, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. The word there says enemy. This is someone you dislike. This is, this is your neighbor who doesn't let you park in front of his house, who always parks in front of your house, who who's, decides to water his grass and pours some on your car as well, whatever you want to invent, gets out of his house to leave one day, and his car doesn't start, and he says, hey, 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 you got to your car. Do you have any jumper cables? And you have no jumper cables in your car. But you know you have jumper cables in your garage. Yeah. So now you can say, "Oh, sorry," you know. You point to your car. I don't. I don't have any jumper cables, which is sort of true. Not, I don't have any here with me. Or you can love your neighbor and take care of him. That's not easy, but that's what God expected. Jump over next book, Leviticus chapter nineteen. Leviticus chapter nineteen, verse seventeen. Leviticus 19, 17. You shall not hate your neighbor in your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. It doesn't say you can't disagree with him, but it says don't hate him. Reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Go, go, go talk to him. Work things out. That's the reasoning with him. Verse 18 You shall not take vengeance. You shall not bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then God says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. That's a common phrase in Leviticus. I am the Lord. The, 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 this commandment is rooted, one, in God's authority. He's the sovereign God. You must obey him. But it's also rooted in God's heart. I am Yahweh. And that's how I treat people. You shall not take vengeance. You shall not bear a grudge. We serve a God who is patient, slow to anger. And so we show love to our enemies because God loved us even when we were his enemies. That, that's the message of, of the cross. Christ came, we were enemies separated from God, worthy of death, worthy of judgment. It's not like, you know, you find, go outside and you find a puppy, oh, this puppy is so cute. I love it. I'm going to bring it my house and I'm going to wash it up, and now I got a great looking dog. That's not who we were. We weren't some puppy that got adopted into his home. We were rebels, hating God. And he took us in and he transformed us and he placed his spirit upon us and within us and he made us his own. That's the heart of God. Jump over to the book of Proverbs, chapter 14 to see it in the the law, but also in the Proverbs, primarily collected and written by Solomon, but we imagine a lot of these would have come from David as well. David teaches his son Solomon, Solomon writes these down, he teaches them for his son, teaches them his son, and and this becomes a manual that the kings would use to teach their, their sons. Fathers can use this for sons, also kings would use it for future kings. So many principles in Proverbs, you want a son who's pure, you want a son who knows how to work, You want a king who knows how to rule righteously? But you also need a king who understands patience and kindness. Look at Proverbs chapter 14, verse 29. Imagine a young prince hearing this from his father, the king. Proverbs 14, 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. But he who has a hasty temper... Exalts folly. Maybe it's appropriate because it's 4th of July. We say a man can have a short fuse, right? No one likes that. You ever had that? You light the firework, it goes halfway and it stops, and you go, oh, who's going to light it now? Because that gives you half as much time to get away. That's how some people are. We know that. Something happens and pff, they blow up. And our culture exalts that. That's a that's a real man. He's not going to be disrespected And this king tells his son, no, when you're slow to anger, that's what gives you wisdom. The one who has a hasty temper, that's the foolish man. Jump over to chapter 15, verse 18. Proverbs 15, 18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife. This is gonna get bigger than you want it to. But he who is slow to anger quiets contention. You got to learn. This is, this, is, this is God telling us these things for our own good. You're not, you're not helping this. You think, your sin is telling you, oh, okay, you're going to fix it. You're going to get mad at them, and they're going to go, oh, okay, sorry. And then the fight's over. And that's not how it works, right? You get mad, and it just grows from there. Chapter 16 of Proverbs, verse 32. 16, 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit, that's self-control, is better than he who takes a city. The the, the champions of the time who would lead armies and conquer cities. He says, do you want to be someone like that? You learn to control, not a soldier, not, 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 not your enemies. You learn to control yourself. Next chapter, Proverbs 17, verse 14. The beginning of strife is like the letting out water. This is a breach in the dam. No one sees, if a dam is, is, has been placed there for the protection of a city and you see leaks in, you go, ah, oh, it's okay, it's just a little leak, no big deal, because that's gonna break. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, and so the wisdom there is quit the quit, just quit before the quarrel breaks out. And that's, that's how fights work, right? I sat in the car next to my brother, someone breathed on somebody, someone poked somebody, someone pushed somebody, and then someone got in a, and then we got in a fight. That's how it works. Jump over to chapter 19. Proverbs chapter 19 verse 11. A lot of wisdom here. Good sense, good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. That is so contrary to the human nature. It is a glory. Did you see what that man did? He was offended. and didn't do anything back. In fact, he was kind. What a glorious man. That's not common. That's not what we think, but that's what God's word tells us. That's glory. Chapter 20, verse three. It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife this is personal strife it's an honor on the other hand every fool will be quarrelling lastly same chapter verse 22 proverbs 20:22 20, it says do not say i will repay don't say that instead wait for the lord and he will deliver you god will take care of you god's in charge god sees what's happening He'll take care of it. I'm sorry if I said that was the last one. I thought it was two more. Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24, verse 17. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. Sometimes we're taught in cultural Christianity, oh, you're not supposed to, you know, we don't want any bad things to, have to happen. But, but the motivation here seems to be, no, no, God is judging your enemy, and you want that to continue, but if you begin to take a sinful pleasure in that and gloat in that, God says, okay, no, no I'm done with him. now I'm dealing with you. The last one, Proverbs 25. We'll, we'll, we'll see this again in, in Romans. Proverbs 25, verse 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. You have the Lord's reward. And you have the Lord's vengeance. Burning coals on the head. Some theologians or historians believe that it was this practice in the culture when they were mourning. Some would do dust. Some would do ashes. Others would put on a plate and they would put hot coals as, as a symbol of their mourning. They may not even have been hot, but they had been burned. It was just a symbol of their, of their humility and their pain. It says, You, you treat your enemy with kindness, they're going to feel worse. They're going to understand their own foolishness. You, you can bring them to repentance. All that again is, is is a king trying to t- help his son understand his son, be slow to anger because God is slow to anger. In terms of vengeance, let's look at one minor prophet. Go to the end of the book of Joel. It's a little trickier to find. Joel chapter 3, the last three verses of the book. The uh, foreign nations had attacked Israel. Israel had also gone to them thinking they could find help from them. None of that worked out. And they had taken advantage of Israel and their weakness. And here's what God says at the end of... Joel's prophecy verse 19 Joel 3:19 he says Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom shall become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land God's going to punish these nations for the way that they had afflicted his people verse 20 but Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations and the last verse of Joel says, I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged. For the Lord dwells in Zion. God takes care of his people. But you understand that. Sometimes my own kids, right? Something happens and they look and they want to fix it themselves and we have to tell them, you're not in charge of that. Mom and dad will deal with it. And we may not deal with it in the way that you want and in the timing that you want, but it's not your responsibility. And the same is true with our heavenly father. Things happen, and I got to deal with it. This needs to be dealt with, and the answer is it will be, but God will do it in His timing. Don't respond to evil with evil. God will reward, and God will judge. A couple of famous passages. Jump over to the Book of Matthew, chapter five, Sermon on the Mount. You may have had this in mind already. Matthew, chapter five, verse thirty-eight. Jesus says to the people, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's from the Old Testament. And that law was intended to give a limit to punishment. If you, eye for an eye. If you hurt someone, you cannot hurt them more than, than, than what they hurt you. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But the culture began to say, well, that means I am free to get you back. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The, 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 the point there is not an attack, the point there is an insult. That's what a slap was. They're publicly insulting you. And he says, You want to honor God? You want to be, we'll get to that phrase, sons of God? You want to imitate the heart of God? Don't repay evil for evil. Verse 43 continues, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collector do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. So, on the one hand, He's elevating the standard, one, so we understand God's holiness and respond with humility, confession. We can't live up to that standard, and yet, in Christ now, we've been enabled to do that. That's what Christ wanted. Matthew chapter 18, remember Paul Peter wants to exalt himself. Hey, should I forgive my brother seven times? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. Luke chapter 23, you can turn there. If not, I got to move a little quicker. Luke chapter 23, you know Jesus has been mocked. He's hanging on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's the heart of our Lord. Yes, we have a conquering Messiah, but the judgment of Christ to come shouldn't lead us to judge people now. It should lead us to be patient and show them the love of Christ, which is what he shows us. That was the heart of Stephen, Acts chapter 7, verse 60. He's stoned in the pit. He's dying. He gets a vision of Christ. Then he says, Father, do not hold this sin against them. Jump over to Romans chapter 12. Stephen had his eyes on Christ. And so he loved even his enemies. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Actually, go to verse 1. Very familiar, you should know this. Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So based on all the mercy God has shown us, that's what he describes in chapters 1 through 11. I appeal to you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You want to honor God rightly? Give him living, holy sacrifices. That's you. And that includes, jump now to verse 17. Here's how you worship God with your body, with your life. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God. And then he quotes those passages from Proverbs. And verse 21 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what's going on. God and Satan are, are in a battle. We know who's going to win. We know what, what the end of this is, but us as caught in the middle. Sin comes at us and we can participate in the work of Satan by responding to evil with evil, or we can participate in the plan and the purposes of God in our hearts by responding with good. Again, so beautiful when we think about it and hopefully elevated in our hearts, but in real life, that's what makes it so difficult. You called me a name, I'll call you a name. You cut me off, I'll cut you off on the freeway. In the Corinthians, it was lawsuits. You you, you owe me money, I'll, I'll sue you back. And Paul says, why not rather be defrauded? What? Lose money over a brother? Yes, what you're doing is tainting the name of Christ. Jump, jump to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. The first half of the book is him describing the salvation we have in Christ, and then chapter 4 is the application of that. Chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 17, he says, Now this I say, and I testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they, they, the world, this is who you were before Christ, this is who I was, they're darkened in their understanding, they're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of heart, they've become callous, they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him. And we're taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And he goes on to describe a list. You used to lie, now you need to tell the truth. You used to steal, now you need to be generous. And the summation of that is chapter five, verse one. He says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. we got to take our minds off of what this person did, off of the pain that it causes us, and say, there's a big picture here. Satan is at work in sin, and God is at work in righteousness. Who am I going to honor? Who am I going to serve Ultimately, we want our eyes placed on Christ. Jump almost to the end of your Bibles, 1 Peter, chapter 2. Peter wrote this letter to a group of Gentile Christians who were about to begin suffering or were already suffering. Severe persecutions coming from the Roman Empire. It's a a letter written to the suffering saint. Chapter 2, verse 21, he says, For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And here's his description of Christ. 1 Peter 2, He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Instead, it says, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's the heart of someone who doesn't repay evil for evil. God's in charge. He'll take care of it. He's sovereign. He's all-powerful. He will bring justice. He will reward me. I trust Him. He's my faithful creator. Chapter 3, verse 9, says the same thing. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. What God has done for you, you're called to now do for the world. What he has, some people say, vertically. What God has shown you vertically, you're to stretch out horizontally. That's what it means to let your light shine before men. Chapter 3, verse 13, he's now addressing the fear. He says, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. God's in charge. He sees, He'll reward you. No need to return evil for evil. And the last passage in this book, chapter four, verse 19. He ends up this section by saying, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, that means you suffer for righteousness, not for sin, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Last passage, just because we started in Genesis, go to Revelation chapter two. A bunch of letters here to various churches, but you see the heart of Christ to tell them you're going to it's going to hurt but I'm with you Revelation chapter 2 verse 8 to the to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life Jesus says I know your tribulation I know your poverty but you are rich I know the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not they're the synagogue of Satan Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. That's the nearness and the reward of Christ. And we need one another to remember these things. As a church, we're on a mission to glorify God and part of glorifying God, our part in that is responding to evil with good. It's working toward the purposes of God rather than the purposes of Satan. So when you see something flare up, when someone comes to you and they may be hurt, they may be angry, but you realize they're being moved to respond in sin, you take them back to these things. Look to God's sovereignty look to god's nearness look to god's love look to god's reward look to god's vengeance so that rather than responding with malice and anger we can respond with the tenderness and the compassion and the love of christ let's pray father it's a clear theme in scripture And we pray that it be a theme in our life that when evil comes at us, when the sinners of this world target us, our response would be kindness and grace. We have seen people respond to us with kindness and grace when we've sinned against them. We pray you enable us to do the same. We ask... For the glory of Christ, amen.